like everybody else is like you know they're they're still stuck and like right after you know the talkies came out basically i was mad as hell and i'm not gonna take this anymore so you lie to yourself to be happy there's nothing wrong with that we all do it we all go a little mad sometimes come on one of you nuts has got any guts what's for the smile Face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be, and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So, this week, after taking a look at Matt Reeves' earlier work, Let Me In, we are looking at the big, big new release this week, which is War for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, and to do that, I have a brand new guest, someone I've wanted on the show for a while and haven't been able to get on mainly through my own planning difficulties, and that is uh, Richard Newby, who's the executive editor at Audiences Everywhere. So thank you for joining us for the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I want you to have a chance to kind of um, pump up not only Audiences Everywhere, but but your work in particular, because I'm, I'm a big fan of your writing, and I think more people should be should be reading it. So if my listeners aren't, why don't you tell them, you know, maybe where they can find your writing and some uh, some pieces that are out there that you think are kind of representative of what you can do. Thanks. Audiences everywhere. I've been writing there for this will be the third year. Um, I uh, you can find my uh, a lot of my pieces are on Twitter. I tweet them out all the time. I'm at Richard L. Newby on Twitter. Recently, I've written about I wrote a long retrospective about the previous Planet of the Apes movies. I'm a huge fan of the franchise, so I wrote about the ones um, from the late 60s, early 70s, and talked about how those themes kind of correlate not only to our past in regards to like the civil rights movement and Vietnam, but also in terms of our present political situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this month, um, audiences everywhere were featuring, were featuring a bunch of uh, pieces about America and movies that remind us of America or our American experiences. Um, so we've been running that all month. Uh, I'm really excited about that. It's something that I've been trying to get together uh, since last year. And I think this year in particular uh, is a good year to talk about mm-hmm. you know, America and how it's changed and what it means and kind of what we're hoping for for the future. Um, I wrote about Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole um, and just about journalism and journalistic integrity and kind of how that's changed based on the internet age and, you know, the branding of, of negativity and mm. um, how, you know, news has become sensationalist. So that's something that I'm really proud of. So I think it's a really strong reflection of the kind of work that I'm interested in. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. So definitely follow Richard on Twitter. He's a great follow in general, uh, but also a really great way to find his work and other great work that's out there on on audiences everywhere. All right. Um, so to start with uh, for this episode, I wanted to ask, I mean, you kind of briefly mentioned it, but but what's your history with uh, the Planet of the Apes franchise? Like, is this something you were, you know, introduced to the new ones and went back or were you a fan of the old ones when you were younger? What, what was your kind of process in getting into this uh, this set of movies. Um, I was a I was a big fan of them as a kid, mm. and I don't. It's it's a weird thing because I wasn't like introduced to them by someone older. <laughs> I mean, my my parents had seen them. My mom liked the movies in particular, but I just like remember seeing the covers at the libraries and just thinking <laughs> like how interesting 
they looked. And I, I remember renting at least the first two from the library multiple times uh, when I was young. And I I remember buying Planet of the Apes action figures. And <laughs> I was I was a really big fan of the, of the franchise. And Sci-Fi Channel used to run marathons that I used right. to watch. And when the uh, Tim Burton movie came out in <laughs> 2001, I think I was about 10 at the time. And I was I was super hyped for that, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I enjoyed it when I first saw it. But <laughs> mm. I've revisited it several times over the years, and wow, it just it's it not does great. not hold up at all. <laughs> yeah, but um, I remember when they first announced this new series and delving into uh, Caesar and taking a more grounded approach, and I was kind of unsure about how it would turn out, you know, because yeah. I mean. At the time, the reboots that were happening weren't that great. I think it was like right on the tail of the Thing reboot. So that was, mm. you know, fresh in my mind as well. But I remember seeing Rise of the Planet of the Apes and just being like so blown away by mm. what Andy Serkis was able to do and just Ridiculous. the story and how they were able to, you know, talk about our the way that we're using medicine, you know, to better ourselves, but also like our, our modern fears of of viruses and sicknesses and stuff, but then also tie that to the larger themes from the previous movies about uprisings and enslavements and looking at these apes as actual people, you know, right. finding their humanity. Yeah. It's interesting. I think I come from a dare, a very different perspective as far as like my history with it. Cause it's, it's something that's always been in popular culture. Like everybody knows what the planet of the apes is, even if you've never seen it, like you, you know, you've seen it on clip shows, you know, just Charlton Heston, you know, pounding his fist on the on the beach, you know, you goddamn dirty apes. Like, all you, this is just a part of a, of a cultural lexicon. So it's something that I actually owned the movies and, like, never watched them because I was like, I'll watch them someday. <laughs> like, you know, they're good classics. I'm sure they'll be good. Uh, and then I ended up watching the first one for the podcast and was kind of blown away at how not silly – it was because you think like, oh, people in these costumes and these ridiculous masks, like it's going to be hard to take seriously, uh, but then never watched the sequels. And then like you watched um, Dawn and Rise and was really impressed by them. So then I went back and watched and watched the old ones, like all kind of in a row. And there's definitely some there's some weak spots in there. There's some that aren't aren't as good, but there's some really good stuff in there. And I think a lot of it gets lost in the shuffle. So rewatching Rise and Dawn is what got me to kind of go back. And take a look at, at these older ones again. Because I, like, honestly forgot how how good these first two were. Like, for some reason, they just didn't they didn't purely stick with me. I was like, that was good. And then just kind of never went back to it. And then in preparation for going to see War for the Planet of the Apes, I rewatched these. And I was like, you know, these are better than I remember. Like, I think all people remember, of course, is, like, kind of the Andy Serkis performance, which is just the only word for it is groundbreaking like what he's doing is like you know you could say like oh it's the special effects that are doing the work blah 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 like no one else is doing what he's doing like toby kebbell was good he was very good in the second movie and you know kind of makes a brief appearance here um but like what andy circus is doing not only with his performance but the way he subtly changes his performance not only from film to film but during the movie as you can see him kind of growing and learning and his vocabulary get larger and his emotions change like it would be really easy to just pick a voice for caesar and stick with that for the six and seven hours of these movies but they are almost they are they're the same character but you can actually feel the growth which is i think the most impressive thing about his character work. yeah definitely i think that andy circus is like 10 years ahead in terms of acting like everybody else is like you know they're 
they're still t- stuck in like right after you know the talkies came out basically <laughs> <laughs> and andy circus is just like so far beyond what's going on like i i legitimately think that he's our finest actor just hmm. like the amount of craft that he puts into it i just and i mean like i thought that with with lord of the rings too but i think like especially now just the way that like you said that he's able to show this evolution of the same character and the subtleties and performance. And there's, you know, stretches throughout um, all three of these new Planet of the Apes films where it's, it's all silent mm-hmm. and, you know, just his facial expressions are carrying so much of the films. Yeah. It's almost hard for me to even put him in the same category as other actors working right now. It's like, it's like he's playing a different game because I think there is a very different skill set for what he's doing than if you're a quote unquote regular actor doing like a, you know, a drawing room movie where you're just kind of, you know, there's a lot of dialogue and you're kind of working through the process. Whereas this is like, it's not any better, or any worse than that. It's just so different. And you can even see it in comparison to the other actors he's working with. Like they're, they're all doing great. They're all doing wonderful work, but like there's a reason your eye is drawn to Caesar and it's not purely because he's the main character. It's there's something like you mentioned about those facial expressions where you're just like, I want to look at this for hours. Like I just want to, because there's so much subtlety going on uh, in those facial expressions and in his reactions to things. It's not just, you know, granted he has the most dialogue of any ape in the movie because he's the most advanced, but like those aren't the interesting parts to me. Like the speeches are not the interesting parts. It's the speech uh, combined with the facial expressions combined with kind of the sign language going on that like you actually get these like kind of four and five levels of communication you know, in a really efficient way without doing like 19 monologues during this movie, which most movies, I mean, even the older Planet of the Apes movies, there's a lot of talking in yeah. those movies. Whereas this one is like, it's, it's very, it's, it's very kind of old school in that way where you don't see movies like this anymore that are big action epics in a lot of ways, but you, they don't ever really get bogged down in speechifying. I, th- I think, I think what, what they're doing here is really interesting because in a movie that's a special effects heavy and has, you know, all these kind of CGI characters, it would be really easy for us to not to not align ourselves with these CGI characters because they're so they're so different, right? They're not quote unquote human, but the the performances are so human that about twenty five minutes into this movie, I kind of forgot that I was looking at CGI creatures. I was just like, oh, this this is as... It's a better performance even than if you put someone in an ape costume and had them be able to be on screen. Like, there's these moments where they're kind of... It's like it becomes a little bit of a road movie, maybe 20, 25 minutes in, um, and then kind of going on those adventures and finding new characters and meeting them before they move on. And I was just struck as they were walking along at, like, how aligned I was with them and how I didn't need humans to show up i would be fine with just hanging out with these group of characters which is really rare yeah they they feel really really tangible and like right i do think i think part of that is just like weta did like an amazing job with just like (laughs) you know the cgi over the motion capture i mean like the hair is just like amazing in the way that it and like with the snow coming on the hair and it was just like oh my god how how did you do this (laughs) yeah and like like you're saying with like watching these characters kind of like ride off on their journey, you know, it felt like in some ways it felt like the classic Western movie. Yes. And it felt like you were watching like I mean like I could have been watching, you know, Clint Eastwood in a spaghetti western and not felt any different in terms of how I viewed these characters. Like clearly 
they're apes riding horses, which like is a cool science fiction thing, but it yes. feels so grounded and real. Like there's no separation in believability between if I was watching a human riding those horses and watching, you know, an orangutan and a gorilla and chimpanzees riding those horses. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Um, the, the only, there's only like a couple negatives for me. This Cause I, I mean, I haven't said it, but I, I mean, I think it's obvious. I really enjoyed this movie and had a great time with it. I still don't think it's my favorite of the trilogy. I think it's a, a perfect wrap up for this trilogy, I think, and there's rumors of them continuing and we'll, we'll see if that happens, but like uh, th- this trilogy could end now and it would feel complete. And there's that sense of like things were bound to happen and you knew, you kind of knew it was coming, but not in a way where you're like, okay, let's just get this ending over with. But in this way of like, yes, it was meant to be this way. This is how you wrap it up. Um, but the only kind of negatives I think I have, one we'll talk about in spoilers. And the other is, I think, although, Woody Harrelson's character was better and more affecting than I than I than I thought he would be going into the movie. I was concerned because like we all walk in with these preconceived notions and I look at Woody Harrelson and I want to laugh. Like I don't think of him <laughs> as this dramatic. I just like I'm ready, you know? Like even when he's playing pseudo dramatic roles, there's bits of comedy in there. Yeah. I think there are moments that still kind of happen like that's so emotional moment right. uh that's kind of in the trailer and you and it's kind of it's almost laugh inducing but he's such a threatening character that you don't you don't really want to laugh but i do feel like like i mentioned i was so i was so with these apes that well, when the humans show up it's kind of like i felt like they were more a means to an end than true characters with an arc like you need a villain and he woody harrelson fills that role very well but i did find myself missing the villain of the second film yeah, I think that – I mean it's it's really hard to top Koba. I feel like he was I mean that's just, why they bring him back in this in these like flashback yeah. sequences. Like remember? This was awesome. And now he got like yeah, blood dripping yeah. down his face. It's creepy. So <laughs> Yeah, and I mean I think that they clearly wanted like the shadow of Koba to hang over this movie to still kind yes. of have him as a villain while, you know, not having him. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think – I, I liked what Woody Harrelson did, and I agree that it is like there always is a bit of you know comedy to his roles, and I he was definitely challenge ch- channeling. I thought um, Kurtz from Apocalypse Now, and uh, oh, this movie does wear that on its sleeves. There's like yeah, it's like thirty three percent Apocalypse Now, thirty three percent The Great Escape, and then thirty three percent its own thing. Like <laughs> yeah. if you've seen either of those movies, you're like, oh, okay, I I know what you're doing here. Yeah. But like I thought that he he brought enough of his own to the role to make it interesting. And and one of the things I like that I was thinking about is he doesn't feel like a standard military uh, figure, like a standard military threat. Like he feels like he's, you know, one of the asshole soldiers, you know, from before who just kind of happened to rise up through the ranks because right. people died. You know, and I kind of I kind of appreciated that. Like there's no sense that he was, you know, the top military man before the virus broke out. It's like he was probably a grunt and probably, you know, a soldier who already had some moral issues going on. Right. And so, like, I think that his extreme, like, measures of, of violence, um, especially concerning um, kind of where the, the virus goes in this movie um, and his reaction to that, I think definitely – kind of plays to him being definitely like not the smartest human or not, you know, grounded in terms of the principles of a, of America that we think that the military is founded on. 
Yeah. Yeah, I also think, like, I want to take one minute to just recognize, one, the director, Matt Reeves, like, this is kind of, like, for, especially for a quote-unquote blockbuster, like, this is masterful work behind the camera. Like, it's, for sure. to me, I heard a couple of my friends uh, who remain nameless, because I don't want to talk about them, because they had a bunch of negative shit to say, uh, <laughs> we're talking about how slow this movie was, and I didn't feel that at all. Like, I felt like it was, it's not a quickly paced movie, it's not your standard action movie in that way but because it's so character driven like i was i was fine with the pace i think it worked really well um there's some really interesting shots in this movie there's you know and having just watched let me in i was kind of noticing how matt reeves has this tendency to frame his shots in very interesting ways so it always feels like you're looking around the corner so it kind of makes you lean forward in your seat as an audience member and especially in the beginning of this movie when uh woody harrelson's character kind of first attacks and we're kind of going through these tunnels and you get the you know the green laser sightings like all that stuff really really work to kind of ratchet up the tension so and from a screenplay perspective you know i'm not going to give it away now but they certainly very creatively um change things so they're going to match up with the human uh, characters in the older versions like there's something that happens midway through this movie that i thought like wow that is super smart like you are keeping this all in mind and that that really makes me happy that that you managed uh you managed to kind of make things line up really well for fans of the old movie not in a way where you're like oh you're just giving this ode because but it like actually works narratively so i really like that my only real complaint script and kind of character wise is i felt like uh bad ape who was entertaining in small dosages like for me at least just went a little there was a little too much of him and it got to the point where it's like okay too funny like let's let's scale back this is a serious <laughs> story and i get what they're doing you need those moments of levity in a movie as heavy as this but i was just like yeah i get it he's he's dumb and he's hyper and he's you know like we we've got that already and i felt like if they had scaled that back just the tiniest bit it would have been just right but i could definitely see why they wanted to have that character keep popping up yeah i, I agree i think i think he was necessary to the story but i do think that uh you know, some of the comedy kind of went a little overboard. I think I'd be okay with uh, never hearing the line "I'm okay" after <sighs> someone falls down. Uh, yeah, again I mean, in a film. that was actually the moment where I was like, "Oh God, stop it!" Because, like, you know, you've seen that in a thousand movies. Like, you know, someone running and slipping and falling. I'm okay. Like, that's you know, we get it. Like, that's hilarious. I guess like the first ninety times I've heard it in movies, but like, can we move on? And then that. That I, I was really interested in his character when we first find out kind of where he's from and what he's been through. I thought that was really interesting and would be a really interesting kind of spin-off storyline, not necessarily with that character, but with, you know, any of the other apes that were from the same place that he was. I thought that was really interesting. But I felt like after that, he got mostly relegated to kind of, you know, like just this uh, really stereotypical comedic character. And I was just like, uh, you could do better than this. The rest, of, And I think it's just in comparison to the rest of the movie. Like the rest of the movie is like way up here. And then that's like, okay, that's fine, I guess. And it just really, really stands out to me. Yeah, for sure. And I think to go back to what you're saying about the the pacing before is like, I think that they use those those moments of humor to kind of, I don't know, give the film a different texture because I think like one of the things that I, I heard coming out of the movie theater is that people expected there to be a lot more action than there were just because it's, you know, war for, and they expect it to be a giant, you know, battle throughout. But I actually liked that. I mean, we open with that big battle scene in the beginning, right. 
but then it, it slows down. And I think that it shows other aspects of war. Like I think yes. just based on like how modern blockbusters have been going, we automatically think about war as a constant conflict between two sides, a like constant shooting, constant right. fighting. But it's these other parts too. It's it's the emotional part. It's it's the self doubt. It's it's the loneliness in there. It's it's also you know uh, people being enslaved. It's mm-hmm. it's survival. And I think that you know this film. I think Matt Reeves and uh, screenwriter Mark Bombeck really showed like the depth of war beyond just the action sequences. Yeah, I had heard that complaint too, and it's actually I come from the opposite perspective. It's the th- one of the things I like most about this movie is that it's not constant battle sequences. Because really, what this movie is about to me is the kind of needlessness of war and the pointlessness of vengeance. And I think you, that comes across, and I think it, it builds up your expectations of like, oh, there's going to be nothing but war. And then the opening sequence is really action packed, uh, and I love that the rest of the movie is about is not about that. And it's like, it is a war, and we find out, like, later in the movie that the war is not, the war in this movie is not really between who you think it is. And I like that it kind of throws everybody off in that way. Like, I think that's, that's a really smart thing to do. I also think another really interesting point in this movie is that they have these, you know, for lack of a better term, they have these traitor apes, uh, who they call donkeys, um, who started working for the men. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. So it's not just this, like, well, this group looks different from this group, so we're clearly going to have them face off. I thought it was a really interesting look at the kind of political inside of this kind of ape versus human culture. Yeah, I thought I thought that was fascinating, too. I also I thought the the fact that they were called, you know, donkeys and in, in reference to being mules, but also like Donkey Kong was kind of a yeah, fun. That's pretty clever. Play on things. <laughs> but but I also think that. You know, they were like the equivalent of being uh, of being house slaves. And I think that mm-hmm. Planet of the Apes has always done something interesting where it's always kind of referred back to America's social issues. And I think like specifically like the black experience in America and slavery and the civil rights movement. So I thought mm-hmm. that inclusion was just like a really interesting layer to add to these mythos. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we probably won't delve into into too much of it here, but it's like, of course, Planet of the Apes has become a part of outrage culture. Uh, in in the last uh, in the last couple last couple weekends, people making some assumptions about the movie before going and seeing it, and I wanted to kind of keep an open mind about this, and I didn't really feel like, and you definitely can speak more to this, like being a black man in America, whereas I am, you know, the most privileged group around as as a white male. Like you don't you don't get much more privilege than that. But did you did you feel there was anything in this movie for people to be upset about or outraged about as far as kind of civil rights or Black Lives Matter or just the the kind of black experience in America in general? No, I didn't I didn't think there was anything to be outraged about. Like in in all honesty, like I think that the Planet of the Apes franchise, I mean like I think ever since it started in in the sixties, I think it's it's always been very progressive and I think yes. that it's always been on the side of civil rights and the black experience. I think that, you know, these films have always been holding up a mirror to ourselves, you know, and the apes, while they're this other species, they're also us and they're a way for right. us to understand each other and how we interact and how we relate to each other. Like, I think that, I think it's really important to, the black experience and the human experience. I think these movies are 
deeply important to us understanding each other and understanding where we've been and where we're going. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention before we jump to spoilers, and I'm not going to mention this character's name because that name in itself is a spoiler, but I think one of my favorite performances in this movie, besides, of course, Andy Serkis as Caesar, who's incredible, as we've mentioned, is this is this little mute girl um, who becomes a big part of this kind of, you know, this trek across and this, you know, this great escape and everything going in. And I think her performance here is stunning. Like, she is so, so good. I'm sure she hasn't been in much else. She's really young. And of course, doesn't speak during the movie, and that plays a major part in kind of that plot shift uh, that I talked about earlier. But I just, every time she was interacting with, I mean, probably not interacting with a whole lot, <laughs> because most of this is CGI and motion capture, but like she seemed really present and was just a really impressive performance to me. Yeah, I, I thought she was wonderful. Um, just very expressive, and I thought the her learning like sign language and being able to communicate with the apes was really touching in moments. Like there's a, a scene later where she signs and asks um, Maurice, she signs, am I an ape? Mm. And I thought that that scene was just like so touching and just her it's facial really expressions in that scene are just great. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And, and that stuff, and that's another thing about the script is that that stuff built in and, it moved at just the right pace. It didn't feel like, oh, suddenly she knows sign language. Okay, I guess we have to just accept that. But like, because the movie takes a little bit of a slower pace in this kind of, you know, journey across this wasteland, like you get to have those character moments and you get to have these characters, some of which do not trust each other at all at the beginning of this journey. And this is like the classic, like fantasy journey story, right? Like you get this group of people together, some of them get along and some of them don't, but they all have to come together and work together by the end of the film and i think it's kind of masterfully done here that all these characters by the end come together in a way where you're like yeah that actually makes sense those relationships are what is keeping this group together and is what making it's making them stronger which is of course another theme of this movie you know it's like happens near in the very beginning you know and comes to fruition at the end like we're all stronger together and i really like like that message and it's done in a way that's not ridiculous or sappy i, I found that it really worked yeah, for sure. And I think in some ways it it reminded me of Lord of the Rings in that aspect, not just because of the Andy Serkis connection, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just I feel like all of these characters end up where they're supposed to be. And there's such strong relationships that bind all of them together. And the idea that you have this group of characters on the road in this in this quest and they pick up these other characters along the way who... Mm -hmm change the dynamics, but also change how they think about the overall situation in this, you know, battle between humans and apes. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So at this point, I think we're going to move to spoilers because there's something I'm just dying to talk about with you. <laughs> spoilers. What? Read ahead, spoil all the surprises. Not peeking at the end. Isn't traveling with you one big spoiler? That's classified. That's what? It's classified. I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. All right, so here is my one big qualm with this movie. And it's probably my fault for for kind of knowing the older movies. And But at the same point, like we talked about this this mute character earlier who is named Nova, who of course is this, at, least, at, very, at the very least the same name of the character in the 1960s version. This, right. this mute woman who is captured by the apes. So here is my issue with her character. I think her performance is... <laughs> 
is almost perfect. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. But the way the movie is set up and the way it ends, if they don't make another movie, if they don't make a fourth movie, if they decide to end at this trilogy, I'm confused. So in the 1960s version, humans are essentially hunted for sport. Uh, they're imprisoned, and she is one of those that is imprisoned. But right now, she is she is one of the apes, and she has gained the trust of at least three of them, one of which who dies after Caesar dies. I actually thought... As this was going on, once they gave her the little placard that says Nova, I was like, oh, Caesar, Bad Ape, and Maurice all have to die for for this to work for me, for her uh-huh. to become the character she is. But that's not what happens. We still have Maurice and Bad Ape, and of course, lots of things could happen. But really, what is she like? Probably 10 years old in this movie? Yeah. So we've got about eight years until that character becomes who she is in the 1960s version, and she is hunted for sport, and nobody cares about her. And nobody knows who she is. So that, like, kind of, you know, from the terms of someone who's seen all these movies, kind of stuck in my craw a little bit. Like, oh, that's not, that's not really the, and again, it stuck out because everything else was so good. And everything else really fit in. Like, going back to the first movie where you have this little, there's a little bit in the very first movie where, you know, the character who would be Charlton Heston's character has gone off on his mission. And I like that they're like, okay, we are going to tie this all together and it's going to be great. And then this is the one thing in seven to eight hours of movie that stands out is like, why did you do that? And it just, it, it bugged me, you know, not enough to like ruin the movie. Certainly it's still a very good to great movie, but this just like bothered me from a, from a like kind of wrapping everything up standpoint. Cause everything else is wrapped up really well. Well, here, here's what, here's what I think. I okay. think. Convince that... me to love this again, please. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, okay. So bad ape, he talks about how there are other apes out there, mm-hmm. you know, who have, who have learned to speak because that's Caesar's first question is he's surprised that he, he knows how to talk because so far we've only seen like Caesar's uh, tribe of apes. Right. And so bad ape comes from this other zoo and he says that he learned it from, you know, listening to humans. So I think that there are all these other apes out there who I think if they if they have sequels, which I do think that they'll have, that they'll come into conflict with Caesar's apes and that they won't have the same kind of moral understanding that Caesar gave his mm-hmm. apes. And then also like in the original Planet of the Apes it took place in New York. And this play and this one takes place in California. Mm, that's true. And so there has to be like something to get those apes. Yeah, so Nova's got to get to New York coast. somehow. Yeah, huh? That's that's a good point. Yeah, I mean you have the Statue of Liberty moment at the at the end of the very yeah. first movie, so they've got to travel about three thousand miles <laughs> to get where yeah. they need to go. But I do think like this, this is definitely this is the Caesar trilogy, and I think this is one of the most complete character arcs I've seen in a trilogy. I mean ever. I think if you, because sure. I just rewatched these movies, and if you go back to like, you know, you get Caesar as a as a baby, you know, you know, being raised by the scientist, and you know, and then you get him kind of growing into who he's going to be in the second movie, and being like an older grizzled leader by the end. And I think it's, and even just within this film, you have a complete arc where he starts out wanting peace, and then his family is murdered. Um, and then he essentially becomes Koba. Like he, he becomes like, I just, I, this bloodlust, like they deserve to die. This guy deserves to die and I'm going to do it. And even all the way up until like maybe two hours into this movie, he's still there. 
Like that's all he wants is is to is to kill this guy. And I think the moment that's the most affecting in this movie to me, like there's a lot of really emotionally powerful moments in this movie. The end is really powerful. I think Caesar's death is done really well and filmed just beautifully. Uh, to, in, in a way that you're almost like you're, you're affected by it, but I wouldn't go as far to be like, oh, this is gutting. I feel so sad. It felt like this is complete. Like this is, this is where it needed to happen. But the moment where he comes face to face with Woody Harrelson and he has lost his speech and he's become everything that he didn't want to become. And of, again, Andy Serkis's, uh, facial expressions here, like you get this wash of empathy and pity in that moment of just like, Oh, this is awful. What have I been doing? And not only does he feel empathy for this this man who killed his wife and his child, but also, you know, just understands how far down this ugly road he has gone. And it's all and it's on like it's in like what, twenty seconds? And you get all yeah. of that in that moment, which is really impressive. Yeah, there's like there's such a struggle like on his face. Like yeah. he's so he's so torn in that moment. Like I I like had to hold my breath, like watching yeah. that scene in the movie theater. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's not only so intense, but it's just like so tragic. Like you just like feel that like so much, you know, in your heart that he wants this revenge because of what happened to his family. And yet also like he's looking at this human being who has essentially like become like a beast, like an unevolved, you know, creature. And it's just mm-hmm. like, ah, I think like that scene just like, it's one of the best in the franchise, but I also feel like it encapsulates it encapsulates that struggle between ape and human so well in that moment. Right. And I also think it's it's interesting. You mentioned like the unevolved beast. And I think for me, like I, I mentioned, I love that we have this extra plot point where this this virus has mutated and now you lose the power of speech. Right. But I actually don't think it makes people beasts. I think it makes people who they are. I think that that character, Woody Harrelson's character, was already beastly. He's just lost the power of speech because if you look at Nova, who has been infected by the same thing, she's kind, she's open-minded, she loves, she cares about people. So it's not as if this virus makes you subhuman. It takes away your voice. It takes away things that you love and things that you care about. But if you look at Woody Harrelson's character, the only people he really talked about that had lost the power were other soldiers. So these are people who have been trained maybe to be hyper-masculine, maybe to be violent. So maybe they become beastly. Whereas like these other characters, it, it doesn't have the same effect. So it's like who you are and who you surround yourself actually matters. And I like that that's something that's there, but without... And it's another movie that like there are all these moments that are there, but they don't belabor the point they don't say it they don't tell you oh now you're just like this character now you're doing this it's like you just have to i like that matt reeves trusts the audience and it's just gonna be like you're gonna get this because you're not idiots i don't know if he's right because i was surrounded by idiots in my theater but (laughs) but i like that he went that route instead yeah i i agree i think i think that's a really good point too i I do think that, yeah, it, it matters, like, who these people surround themselves with. And I do think it's, like, the purest form of of who they are when they're stripped of of language or, you know, communicating in the way that, you know, we've learned to communicate. I think that I, – I think also think it just says something about, like, the way we interact with each other now, like, in terms of, of technology. Like, we have all these – avenue news to communicate with each other and we build up these personas right through our ability to communicate through technology or through speech or whatever but then when you take that away 
you know, the person who you are, like at your core, I think comes out. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I also think this movie brings up uh, a lot of interesting point. We talked about the the donkeys earlier, and I was glad we had this kind of moment near the end where one of the donkeys who's constantly been in Caesar's face, like, actually has a change of heart and, quote-unquote, does the right thing in that moment. And I think also that entire action sequence works really well. Like, with, with Caesar kind of being essentially behind enemy lines, trying to take out this tanker and being, you know, and one first getting attacked by someone he saved and then yeah. getting saved by someone he has attacked. And I thought that was a re- and this all in this space of like five minutes and actually thought it was going to go a different way. I thought that ape was going to help him, but he was going to blow up the tanker. But I like that Caesar was still able to do this in the end. And I thought that stuff was, I mean, it was bi- again, like built throughout the movie. Like I kept waiting for that donkey ape to turn and be on Caesar's side. Like every time he would cut him out of his restraints, I was like, oh, it's finally time. He's going to help him. And it just never happens. And he just holds it back and holds it back. And it's kind of the same thing that Reeves has done in movies like Let Me In. Like you never get the vampire unleashed in that movie until essentially the last scene of the film. And he's really yeah. good at like, I know you want it. And it's coming, but you're going to have to wait. Like, you're going to have to sit here for two hours and 20 minutes, and I'm going to give it to you, but you just have to be patient. And it, it makes it so much more rewarding when that turn finally does happen. And I think that's what I meant about things you knew things were going to happen, but it still worked. Like, it, it just it wrapped up just so well. All these plot points, like, he knew he had to get there, but he gets you there in a way that even though you know it's coming, you're happy about it when you get there. Yeah, definitely. I agree. All right. Uh, anything else you want to add before we finish up? Any other spoiler moments that you think are worth mentioning? Um, I just want to mention uh, Michael Giacchino's score, which I oh think god, is it's gorgeous. And I'm not a score it's... guy. I never noticed scores, but I was like, oh my god. There's like <laughs> there's like moments of playfulness when they're sneaking in and out. There's like the right amount of uh, of ominous in in his score, like. This really struck me, and I was really – I'm glad you mentioned that because I never mentioned score. I'm like, <laughs> unless it's great or terrible, I'm like, yeah, there's music, I guess. But here, like, it was very noticeable in a good way. And, like, I think that – because I, I listened to um, the Don one earlier this week, which he also did. And I think, like, a lot of times with sequels, like, a lot of times you hear, like, the, the motifs or mm-hmm. certain, like, tracks repeated. Like, it becomes a theme. Right. But here, like, the familiar motifs are used very sparingly. Like, most of the music is entirely new and entirely built around this new situation, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Awesome. All right. So that's it for a review. I think we both really liked it. I think uh, you even liked it a little bit more than I did because you should read. You just uh, you just wrote uh, a review of this, right? Um, I did. Yeah. So, so people should go to audiences everywhere uh, and check that out. I'm actually going to read that now. I didn't want to read any reviews before I talked about it, uh, but now I'm. That's the first. That's the first review I'm going to read. So I'm looking forward to that. So one more time before you take off, why don't you let people know uh, where they can find you online? Okay, uh, yeah, you can find me at audienceseverywhere.net, and I'm on Twitter, at Richard Elmer. And I know you've been on other shows before. It won't, it won't be like a four-hour recording. Yeah, should that's be like, good. <laughs> <laughs> it should be like 45 minutes max, so... Yeah.